Well, hello, Willingdon Church family and anyone else who's joining us today. So glad that you're here. Uh, My name is James. I'm one of the pastors at Willingdon. And today I have the privilege of starting us off in a new series called No Matter What. We're going to be looking at the book of Philippians, working through the whole book over the next couple of months and looking at how God calls us to follow him no matter what we're facing, no matter what the obstacles, no matter what the circumstances And so if you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to Philippians chapter one. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. But as you turn there, I just want to say how amazed I've been at the way that God has just been at work in the details as we enter into this sermon series. You see, up to about a couple months ago, our plan was to start after Easter a sermon series in the book of Romans. We're going to take Romans, I think, chapter one through four and kind of just work through that as part of this building block. And and that was going to be great because Roman is is such an amazing book. Uh, Paul's writing to a group of believers that he's never met before, a church that he's never visited. And so in Romans, unlike many other books in the New Testament, you're really just getting Paul saying, this is who I am and this is the gospel message that I'm preaching. And so it's got this extensive theology. It's got this kind of amazing sense in which there's just so much theology and gospel packed into the book of Romans. It's really quite special. It would have been a really nice series. But a couple months ago, as I said, Ray came. uh, He did a little bit of a prayer retreat, a study retreat. He came back to the preaching team. He said, I just feel like God's calling us to enter into the book of Philippians at this time. And we said, hey, that's that's a good idea. We're, We're on board with that. We think it'll be good. But what's so neat about this is just the way I think God has been orchestrating this decision. Because when Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, it's a different situation than when he wrote the letter to Romans. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he was actually in custody. In Roman custody, most likely, chained to a soldier. And he's writing isolated from the people that he knows and loves very well. You see, with Philippians, when Paul wrote this letter, he was writing to a group of people who he loved and knew quite dearly. He was there when the church was planted. He knew so many of the people personally. He traveled back to encourage them. And when Paul writes this letter to them, he's now isolated from them. He's now unable to leave the place where he's staying. He's chained to a Roman soldier and he longs to see the people he loves so dearly. Now, of course, we're not facing Roman prison. We're not facing anything like what Paul was facing in that moment, but we are facing isolation from one another. We know what it feels like in this time to long to see one another again, to encourage one another, and to just have those moments where we can be together face to face. And so what we'll find as we read through the book of Philippians is there's so many things that Paul talks about that I think will be really easy to relate to for us. And so as we jump into Philippians, let's pray together and ask that God would just be with us in this time. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can spend together, even though we're apart. And God, I pray that you be with everyone who's tuning in right now, Father. Whether they're listening or watching with family, whether they're listening or watching by themselves or maybe later in the week. God, whether they feel connected to others or whether they feel isolated right now, God, I pray that you would speak to us in this moment and encourage us with your word. We pray that you just help us to be shaped by your word, that we grow through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter one. We'll be going through the first 11 verses this morning, but we'll start with the first two. So here we go. Paul and Timothy. 
servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we'll stop here for a second. If these verses sound familiar to you, there's a good reason for that. It's because this is the way that Paul starts pretty much all his letters in the New Testament. He starts by saying his own name, talks about who he's sending the letter to, and then says grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you probably noticed that Timothy is also included as a sender of the letter, even though we don't really think of him as an author. The reason for that is because Timothy was with Paul when he wrote this letter. He was also with Paul when Paul first visited the church in Philippi. And so there's that connection there. There's that relationship there that Paul really wants to emphasize. And that's going to become important later on. Let's continue reading now, verse 3 to 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for all of you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What Paul is saying here is when he remembers the Philippian church, he's thankful to God. Now, it's a pretty basic thing to say, a pretty simple thing to say. But what's so neat for us is that when Paul talks about remembering the Philippian church, we actually know what he's talking about. Because when you go to Acts chapter 16, Paul is, his events and his visit are recorded for us by Luke, the author of the book of Acts. Uh, Listen to what it says in in Acts chapter 8, or sorry, Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Sumathrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. These verses, they narrate the events leading up to Paul's visit to Philippi. But what's more than that, they represent a major shift in the book of Acts. I don't know if you noticed, there's a slight subtle shift in the language that's used by the narrator. But listen to this in verse 8. It says, they went to Troas, verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. See, the author of the book, Luke, at this point, he stops talking about them and he starts talking about us. Because what's happening here is Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he's actually part of the story at this point. He's actually one of the people that traveled with Paul at this point in the narrative. And he saw firsthand the things that Paul did and experienced. So we have this major kind of turning point in the the book of Acts here where, where Luke is now an eyewitness to the things that he's writing about. And because of this, we get these vivid details and these memorable stories of what took place. Now, this is a significant journey for many reasons. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus lined up the disciples and he he told them, basically, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were in Judea and Samaria, which is a bit further away from that. And you're going to be my witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth. 
There's this commission that Jesus gives to his disciples. And in the book of Acts, we see the gospel going forward from Jerusalem. It begins Judea and Samaria. It goes up to Antioch. And from there, Paul begins these missionary journeys. When Paul enters into Macedonia, when he goes to Philippi, this is the first time that the gospel is now making its way into what we now call Europe. Uh, This is modern day Europe that Paul is now journeying into. And so it's this monumental journey that Paul is taking as the gospel goes forward in this way. But what's more than that, and I think what's, what's helpful for us to look at when we read this story in the book of Acts, it helps us to get a sense of who Paul had in mind as he was writing this letter. It helps us to think who were the faces that Paul thought about? Who are the people that he kind of had in his mind as he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi? And Paul meets in the book of Acts three people. Um, probably more than that, of course, we know that Paul knew everyone in the church in Philippi. But we have these three stories of people that Paul knew well that give us a sense of the diversity of people that would have been part of the church in Philippi. The first person we meet is Lydia. Now, if you were to talk about where someone would fit on the social scale, Lydia would be quite near the top of the social scale. Uh, She was quite wealthy. She was a seller of purple goods. And there's some debate among scholars. Some people think, well, that must have made her extremely wealthy, kind of in the upper echelon of society. Uh, Some people say, well, no, it's it's not quite clear that she is that wealthy, but certainly more wealthy than most. Uh, Either way, Lydia has resources. Uh, She has a house where she can host the church. She has resources that she can use to support Paul and his his missionary team. She has wealth of some sort or another. What's more is that Lydia is also described as a worshiper of God. What that means is that she's someone who read the Old Testament and she was a Gentile who worshiped God as he had been revealed in the Old Testament. Her heart was open to the things of God. She would spend time at prayer meetings praying to God. And so when Paul came to one of those prayer meetings and he shared the gospel, probably most of us aren't surprised that Lydia's heart was open to receive the good news that Paul shared. And Lydia gave her heart to Jesus. Again, I say probably most of us weren't surprised because if there's anyone who we think, oh, this person would be the perfect candidate to hear and accept the gospel, it would be Lydia. Right? Lydia is someone who you look at her life and you say, she seems to have it all together. She's someone who's religious. She's a worshiper of God. She's already a person who's praying and seeking the things of God. When she hears the good news of Jesus, she responds and she believes in Jesus. But what's so interesting about the church in Philippi is not everybody was like Lydia. Not everyone had that story of, you know, a life that seemed to be all together and and already a heart turned towards God. In fact, Lydia probably represents one of the extremes that was not common in the church in Philippi. The next person we meet in Philippi is actually the opposite of Lydia in many ways. We never hear her name. She's just called a female slave. And this female slave, she's said to have a spirit of divination which allows her to be a fortune teller. In other words, because of the demon possession that she's experienced, she's able to do some kind of fortune telling. And this actually brings a lot of financial resources to her owners because of this. And as Paul and his missionary team go through Philippi sharing the gospel, she follows them and she cries out day after day, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She's just shouting that after them day after day as they're preaching the gospel. 
Now you might say, well, that's a true statement, isn't it? These are men who are servants of the Most High God and they are proclaiming the way of salvation. The problem is this isn't something that you want somebody shouting day after day as they're following you around, particularly someone who's known in town as a fortune teller who has a spirit of divination. And so one day Paul turns to this woman and he casts out the demon and that's the end of it. Now, unfortunately, at this point in the book of Acts, this is one of the places where we would have loved to have a bit more follow-up. It would have been so nice if we had just one more paragraph saying, and this is what happened to this female slave. Right? We, we don't know, did she become part of the church? We're not sure. Did she fully surrender her life to Jesus after Paul performed this miracle? We don't know. But I imagine that Paul, as he's writing the letter to the church in Philippi, I imagine she is someone who came to mind as she displayed God's power. Uh, God's power was put on display rather through this demon being cast out of her. Well, we kind of move on from this female slave. And we have this scene now in the book of Acts where the, the slave owners are just so upset that Paul has cast out this demon. They don't care about this, this girl at all. They don't care about the fact that she's been liberated, the fact that she's been set free. All they care about is the fact that they've now lost some of their financial incentive. They've now lost some financial gain that they had because of her fortune telling. And they drag Paul and, they, and the great drag Silas, who's one of Paul's companions, and they take him to the magistrates of the city and they, they bring charges against him. They say, these men are Jews, and are throwing the city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and practice. Now, if, if the charge that they're bringing sounds a little xenophobic or, or a little bigoted, that's because it is. And they're playing off the idea that this is a proud Roman colony. The people that lived in Philippi, they were quite proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens. And so the charges that they bring are meant to play off this, this, uh, this pride, this idea that we're Romans, we do things the right way, everyone else does things the wrong way. And so they, they say these Jews, these, these people, these foreigners, these outsiders, they're telling us to do things that aren't lawful for us as Romans to do. Now their point is not trying to, to point to something that Paul and Silas are doing. They're just trying to get revenge for what Paul and Silas have done. And it works. The whole crowd joins in the accusations and Paul and Silas, they're beaten and they're thrown into prison. And this is where we meet our third person in Philippi, the Philippian jailer. Again, we're not given his name. We're not given many details about him. But the story goes like this. Paul and Silas, they've been beaten. They've been brought into the prison, into the innermost part of the prison. They're put in shackles or, or, or stocks. And so they're kind of held there. And they decide what better thing to do at midnight in prison than to begin singing songs of praise and praying to God. And so that's what they begin to do. They're, they're in prison, dark, other prisoners likely there. They're in their innermost part. They start worshiping God and praising God. And an incredible thing happens. All of a sudden, the prison begins to shake. There's this earthquake. We saw earthquakes different points in the book of Acts as people are worshiping God. Here's this earthquake. And what happens is as the ground starts to shake, all of a sudden, all the shackles of the prisoners fall off and the door swings wide open. This is not a typical earthquake. This is no coincidence. This is God's power at work. And so what happens is the Philippian jailer, he wakes up from this. 
He stumbles towards the jail. He looks, he sees the door open. He sees basically what his worst fear is that there's, there's likely been a massive prison escape because of the doors being open. And he decides the best thing that he can do is take his own life in that moment. Paul sees him contemplating this decision and he tells him, whoa, stop. Don't worry, we're all still here. Miraculously, none of the prisoners had actually left the, the prison. And we don't know if this is because Paul convinced them not to leave or because God just kind of kept them there, but none of the prisoners had left. And the jailer in that moment recognizes something incredible has happened. He, he knows probably who, you know, the reputation that Paul and Silas had in town. He knows the circumstances by which they were arrested. And so the first question that he asks them as he comes trembling before them is this, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And so the man, he believes and his household believes and they are baptized and they share a meal together. And, and you have this incredible story of transformation in the most unlikely circumstances. And so again, as we look at the book of Philippians now, as we look at that opening line, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, we get a bit of a picture into what Paul's talking about when he says that. Well, Paul remembered people like Lydia the, the upper echelon of society who seemed to have it all together, who was already spiritual and open to the things of God. Paul thought about that lowly female slave who had a spirit of divination and from whom he cast out a demon. And he also thought about that, you know, we might call him a middle-class jailkeeper. Someone who was kind of in the middle of society, not really religious, probably never gave a second thought to who God was, but for whom God miraculously intervened in his life. And I imagine as Paul wrote to the Philippians, there's people kind of all in between that spectrum, people all over the place on that scale that he's thinking of as he writes. And Paul looks back on those memories. He looks back on those people and he gives thanks to God. Uh, the sermon notes say, there is a place for looking to the past and reflecting with thanksgiving. See, these days it seems like everyone's acknowledging or everyone's saying we need to live in the moment and we need to look to the future. It's, it's very popular to kind of say, live in the moment, look to the future. Don't live in the past. Don't think about the past. Forget the past. And, and, and depending on what we mean by these statements, there could be some validity to them in terms of, you know, we need to be present in the moment that we're in. We need to be aware of our circumstances. Uh, we need to be humbly planning for the future and planning to do things in, in the future with the time that God's given to us. But biblically speaking, there's this call by God to remember what's happened in the past. So often in scripture, what, what the, one of the problems is, is that God's people actually don't remember what's happened in the past and they suffer because of it. And so we're called to remember the past, to look back to it, not to live in the past, but to remember it so that we can be thankful for the things that God has done. Now, I don't know about you guys, but one of the themes of my life lately, it seems, has been just this realization of how often I've failed to be thankful for the things that God has given Maybe you've experienced these too, this too, but you know, a week ago I was coming home. I had just kind of braved going out into the world to get some groceries. And I came home with these bags full of groceries. And I remember just having this moment where I put the groceries down and I thought to myself, I am so thankful for groceries. And then I realized as I said that, 
that I couldn't remember a time in my life where I had came home with groceries and said, God, I am just so thankful for groceries. See, there's so many things that I've just kind of taken for granted in the past that now I'm realizing I need to be thankful for these things that God has given. Maybe there's things that you're remembering as well right now. Maybe it's something as simple as walking through the church foyer and seeing someone that you know and love and giving them a hug, giving them a handshake and just saying, hey, it's great to see you. Well, maybe we have taken those for granted in the past, but what Paul, I think, is encouraging us to do right now is to give thanks for those moments even now. Because the truth is, in this time, if you're anything like me, you're going to be remembering what life was like before COVID-19, before the social isolation, before everyone was staying at home. You're going to remember what it was like to be able to go visit a friend's house. You're going to remember what it was like that when we could actually be together in the sanctuary. You're going to remember what it was like when we could sit across the cafe and share a meal together. And the temptation for us is, to be, is, is going to be to look back at those things and have a bitterness that rises up because we can't do those right now. Resist that temptation. We're going to look back at the past. If we're going to do that, though, let's look back with thanksgiving for what God has done. See, God has been at work in the past. And the good news is God is still at work even in this time. Paul tells the church that he's thankful for them and he remembers them, but he's thankful because they've been partners in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, Paul looks at the church and he says, I'm thankful for how our relationship began and how you partner with me in the gospel from the first day. He says, but I'm also thankful for how you've continued to partner in the gospel even till the present day, even to the present where Paul is now isolated from the church, off in captivity and waiting for the outcome of his trial. And so we, we see kind of in the beginning, as Paul talks about this partnership, it's, it's obvious what he meant, right? Paul was in Philippi. They would likely meet together in Lydia's house. They would have these meals together. They would have these services together. They would go and evangelize together. They would do life together and they were partners in the gospel. But of course, things changed. Paul left Philippi. He went on to plant other churches. He went on to do other things, but the partnership still remained. Paul talks about this in Philippians 4, verses 15 to 16. He says this, And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, Paul uses that phrase, no church entered into giving and receiving. What he's talking about is no other church gave him financial support in this time. And he's saying one of the ways that the church in Philippi partnered with him was by giving him financial support even when they were separated. Uh, but it goes much beyond that as well because we know that Paul at points returned to visit them and to give them encouragement. We know that Paul was constantly in prayer for them. We know that Paul was writing letters for them and, and there was correspondence that was happening. They remained partners in the gospel even though their circumstances changed. Now, the reality is if you call yourself a believer, you are called to be a partner in the gospel. What that means is that you're someone who works together with un other believers to share the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And one of the really neat things that I've noticed in this season is I've been calling different people from the church. 
uh, whether within the school of the Bible students, whether discovery leaders or whether just other people from the church that I've connected with. I, as I've been making these calls and just seeing, you know, how, how are people doing? What's, what's going on in your world? What's happening in your life? I've been so encouraged to hear the ways in which people have remained connected to one another at this time. But what's more than that, I've also been so encouraged how people have been reaching out beyond themselves in this time and reaching out to neighbors. I've heard stories of you, you know, whether it's connecting with, with your life group or whether it's connecting with your neighbor. Some of you, of you have offered uh, to get groceries for people on your street or maybe you've offered to pick up prescriptions. Maybe you've done that. I know people have dropped off diapers in our, in, at our house or dropped off other supplies and, and groceries. And it's been this amazing time of people reaching out and continuing to live on mission for the gospel. See, the reality is we are partners in the gospel and we need to support one another in this time. As followers of Jesus Christ, we remain on mission. The great commission that Jesus gave us to make disciples of all the nations, that remains valid even in this time. What changes is the way that we carry this out. And this is where we need to be creative and we need to support one another as we figure this out. A couple days ago, I was uh, grabbing some mail out of the mailbox at our house. And I noticed at the bottom of the mailbox, there was this little card. I took it out and it said, Happy Easter. This is from one of your neighbors down the street. It gave their name. I'm not going to say the name right now. Uh, But it basically just said, this is, you know, Happy Easter. This is what Jesus did. If you want to talk more, I'm always welcome to talk. And I just want to, you know, encourage you on this day. And I just thought, what an awesome way for someone who realizes we're still on mission together. What an awesome way for them to reach out and to be a partner in the gospel, even in these difficult times. And for all of us, I think there's that call to recognize how do we use this time for the furtherance of the gospel, to be partners in the gospel, even in these times. I think collectively, there's never been a time where we've had so much time to ourselves at our houses. Most people, for the most part, depending on what you do, most people are staying home these days. Hopefully you're doing the same thing. And what that means is that we're seeing our neighbors a whole lot more than we used to, most likely. Uh, We're seeing a whole lot more people as we take walks around the block or as we look over a backyard fence and kind of just say hi to our neighbors. And so there's opportunities for conversation. There's opportunities for offering prayer to people who are stressed out in these times. There's opportunities to be generous with our time, with our resources. There's opportunities that we need to see. I know Pastor Brad's been working with community leaders and just kind of asking them, what are some ways that the church can be helping out in the community? What are the ways that we can be involved and make an impact in this time? And so I encourage you, if you're looking for ways to be involved, there there are opportunities out there. We remain partners in the gospel and we remain on mission because our God remains on mission. God continues to work even in this time. Let's keep reading in verse six and what Paul says next. He says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, Paul is sure Some translations say Paul is confident that God will complete the work that he started in the church of Philippi. And why is he confident of this? 
He's confident of this because they are all partakers with him of God's grace. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm confident because I trust and I put my confidence in the grace of God. Now that might sound like the most obvious thing you could say about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul trusted God's grace, right? Grace is Paul's favorite thing. It's by grace through faith. It's not by works. But you have to remember that this is a major shift that happened in Paul's life. Because if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what do you place your confidence in? For the majority of his life, he would have told you answers other than the grace of God. The majority of Paul's life, he would have said things like, well, I I place my confidence in the family that I was born into. Or I place my confidence in the nation that I was born into, in the tribe that I was born into. He might have said things like, I place my confidence in my religious education. Or I place my, my confidence in the fact that I keep God's law and I'm passionate for God, I'm zealous for God. That's where I keep put my confidence. And the reality is if anyone had a right or if anyone had a reason to put confidence in those things, it was Paul. We read these uh, descriptions in chapter three of the letter, verse four. He says this, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's saying, if anyone has reasons to put confidence in these things, it's me. But look what he says next. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, when Paul came to Christ, all those things that he said, this is where I'm putting my confidence. This is where I'm putting my hope. This is where I'm putting my identity. He said, all those things all of a sudden counted for nothing because of the greatness of knowing Christ. Now, if, if we, we would all, we'd all want to say, well, yes, my, my confidence, my identity is in Christ alone. We'd all want to say, my confidence, my identity, it's, it's in God alone and nothing else. But if we're honest with ourselves, and it's hard to be honest with ourselves, if we're honest, we'd probably all admit that so often we can put our confidence in our identity in things other than God. And the problem with that is, is and moments like this really emphasize this, when those things that we're confident in and that we put our identity, when those things are taken away, we're wondering, what do we have left? So maybe you, you had confidence that this job that you have would be the job that you would retire with. Or, or you had confidence that the business that you started would be successful and it would lead to all kinds of blessings in your life. You, you had confidence that next year you would be able to retire with this amount of money because you've saved over this many years and now all that's thrown out the window. 
And it's in these moments of life where the things that we put our confidence in or the things that we built our identity upon, when those things are taken away, we're left to wonder what's left. It's a disorienting time for so many of us as we kind of grapple with, you know, where have we placed our confidence? Where have we placed our identities? And Paul writes this letter. He's in a situation where he's not sure of many things. So many of the things he'd been confident of, even as a believer, are now being tested. I mentioned earlier the book of Romans. Paul had said, you know, confidently, I I plan to visit you uh, in Rome. And then after that, I'm going to go on to Spain. And now Paul, he's made it to Rome, but he's in prison. And he doesn't know what the future holds for him. He's not sure when his trial is going to be. He's not sure what the outcome of that trial is going to be. He's not sure if he's going to live or if he's going to die. He's not sure if churches are going to continue to support him or if they're going to abandon him. He's not sure what the future holds. <laughs> but he says, I'm sure of one thing. I am sure that God's going to complete the good work he started in you because God's grace is sufficient. Uh, the note says this, we can be sure that God's character and his faithfulness to his promises will never change. And the reality is because we know that God is faithful to his promises, because we know that God is at work, one of the best things that we can do for each other and for the church in this time is to pray. This whole section has been about prayer. Philippians 1, 1 to 11, Paul's just kind of bathing this whole section in prayer, talking about his thanksgiving, talking about his assurance. And now we're hearing actually in these next few verses what Paul is actually asking God on behalf of the church. Listen to what it says. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a lot of rich language here and we're not going to get into all the minute details, but Paul is basically asking God that the love of the church would continue to grow that their knowledge would continue to grow and they produce in their lives the fruit of righteousness that brings glory and praise to God. In other words, he's saying that as their love increases and as their knowledge increases, that that would lead to lives of faithful discipleship to Jesus. It's this idea that this love and this knowledge are not actually pitted against each other. They work together to bring about this character in our lives. I was reading a book this week by Jeff Vanderstelt called Saturate. I think he says it really well. I'll I'll read a quote from from him. He says this, whenever the people in the churches that Paul influenced went sideways, Paul didn't just confront the wrongdoing and tell them what to do. He started by reminding them of who God is and what he had done for them in Jesus and who they were in light of that. Then he reminded them of how believing the truth about the gospel And their new identity would lead them to different behavior. You see, when when we're doing things the way that they ought to be done, when our love increases and our knowledge increases, it leads to life of fruitful obedience and faithfulness to Jesus. This is what Paul prayed for the church in Philippi. Your notes say, this is what we ought to pray for each other. That our love and knowledge would increase as we seek to live lives of faithful discipleship to Jesus. 
Like I said before, there's probably never been a time where collectively as a church, we've had so much time in our own houses, in the places that we live. And maybe you have a large family or you have young kids and it seems like life's just as busy as it's always been. But maybe you're, you're living on your own or maybe a couple roommates and you're thinking, I have so much time on your hands. The reality is there's, there's never been a time in human history where we've had so much entertainment available to us. Right? You could get any of the streaming services that are out there and you could press play and you could not be finished watching all the stuff that's out there by the time this is over. Uh, probably even within your lifetime. But I want to encourage us as we have this unique time before us to use the time that God has given to us, to be partners in the gospel, to recognize that we still have a job to work together to spread the gospel where we are. There's unique challenges, but there's also unique opportunities and we need to do what God has called us to do. But let's also be in this time a people of prayer a people that take this time that God has given us and say, we're gonna spend this time in prayer, giving thanks to God for what he's done for us, giving thanks to God for the memories that we have of one another, giving thanks to God for the way that he's continuing to work in the present, praying for the first responders, praying for the frontline workers, those essential services, but also praying with Paul that as we grow in our love and our knowledge that we would bear fruit, that we would live lives of faithful discipleship to Jesus and do what he's called us to do in this time.